Good morning, Grace. That is what we long for as a church, that the face of Christ will be clear for all the world to see because of our lives, because of our church. Would you open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25? I'm really excited that Tilly is here. Hi, Tilly. That um, I'm really excited that we are diving into... Um, it's always fun this time of year. I see all these faces I haven't seen in a while. Diving into our really second installment, third installment of this Genesis series that we've been doing, taking uh, some detours along the way that haven't been all that big of a detour when we finally start preaching through something else for a little bit. But here we are in Genesis again, Genesis 25, and it's mostly going to be the story of two brothers, Jacob and Esau, and their, their parents, uh, Isaac and Rebecca, Isaac and Rebecca, and I want to just be honest with you that my whole life I've been reading the Bible as long as I can remember. My mom used to sit me on her lap when I could barely even keep my own head up and read the Bible to me. So I've been reading the Bible. I still see the Bible in pictures for little eyes pictures when I read some Bible stories. It's, I've been reading the Bible my whole life, but I don't know how many times I've read the Book of Genesis, dozens of times. And at least. And every time I get to this section in particular, I find myself over and over again, these next ch 10 chapters we're preaching through for the next two and a half months, almost through the summer. This section here, I find myself over and over again when I read these sections saying, Huh? Really? Come on. That's crazy. There's some crazy stuff in these chapters, and I just want to acknowledge that this is a portion of the Bible that every time I've read it, I find myself scratching my head and saying, this is some wild stuff. There, there are a bunch of stuff in Judges make me do this. Like Samson's life, what is going on there, right? He's got a jawbone. It's, it's just, what in the world? And it, it, it's always been a time of wrestling and struggling and doubt. Every time I read these sections, I know it's coming. Okay, so what in the world's a mandrake? And you give these to somebody and you get to have a baby instead of her. And, and it's just some really wild stuff. But I want to prepare us for this. I want to acknowledge that. And I also want to prepare us for this because there are some reasons it's so wild to us. And the main reason it's so wild to us is the very nature of God. God is not a God who drops his truth to us out of the sky, out of a vacuum. He's not a God who just drops his principles for living or truth statements, propositions. He's actually a God who, before he gives us his word, he gives us himself. And since the first nanosecond of creation, he was immediately in it, relating to his creation, talking to his creation, speaking it into existence with his powerful presence and word. And then when he makes human beings, he's immediately conversing and relating, and they back to him. And so that means God reveals himself with real people in real places at real times for all of human history. And then the word of God becomes a record of those revelations of God in time, space, and human history. And so that means 
we're going to take journeys to places that are really different than our place. And we should. If we're doing that and realizing that, we should be saying what Dorothy says over and over again, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. Yeah, we're somewhere really different. And as we know that and realize that, realize the benefit of that. We desperately need voices from people who aren't just in our little frame of reference. Desperately need those voices. I played American football in Europe for a few years. Yes, they have leagues over there. And I was playing. And, and you can tell immediately when they bring an American over to play on one of these teams if he's going to last. Not because they might not have the talent to play as one of the Americans, but do they have the attitude to play in Europe? Because we'd all prefer to be in the NFL, but we're not. So you need to start to appreciate the other benefits of getting to play an option B or C or D. And so we're over there playing, and you can tell the guys immediately who are going to really enjoy this and thrive and the ones who not. And I'm thinking, you know, there was a guy on my team when we played a season in Denmark, and he was a very talented quarterback. And he was from Texas. And he, I, I didn't need to add that, although it, it is kind of part of it. But it's... Um, He's from Texas, and I bet, and he just didn't like it. From the first minute he got off the plane, he just didn't like it. I could tell, you could just tell in his face. I bet he said at least 50 times a day, the whole time he was there, man, this ain't like home. And it wasn't a good thing. His food's not like home. It's, it's car, like his little cars, ridiculous. It's not like home. And I finally had it. After about the third day, I started saying, John, John, I hope you're listening, John, actually. He's not here. I'm not sure what he's doing. But I said, John, exactly. It's not home. That's why it's such a valuable experience. That's why you need to get out of your little bubble and appreciate different experiences that are different, that aren't what you're used to. There's great value in that, John. Do you realize this? Yeah, but it's not like home. I know, that's the point, John. When you got on a plane in Dallas, you knew you were going to another place, right? Now, when we read the Bible, we go to another place. And the last thing we need to do is like, man, this is weird. It's so different. It's not, this is like home. Yeah, exactly. That's why it's so helpful. It's, it's not just limited to our little bubble. And it's so helpful. And it's amazing how people who consider themselves very enlightened and sophisticated can look at Christians and say, oh, they're so narrow and bigoted. But you hear them talk about the Bible. I remember reading in grad school a very esteemed scholar who thought the Bible was ridiculous and Christians were silly for listening to it. He said, how could anyone think they could find truth from toothless nomads from thousands of years ago? as if the amount of teeth you have has anything to do with the amount of wisdom you have or don't have. How arrogant, how bigoted, how what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery filled that is. Toothless nomads. Yeah, you know how many teeth George Washington had in his mouth on his inauguration? Do you know? One. He's a pretty smart guy. 
Right? So now the amount of teeth you have, see, we can get these weird attitudes. And I hear young people especially, that's weird, that's weird. It's just a go-to adjective. No, it's not. It's not weird. It's really fascinating. Just because it's different, don't call it weird. Now, there are things that are bizarre to us in these passages, which is one of the main reasons it's so helpful. But the main reason is because God's revealing himself to people in real places and times. And so it's going to take some work and some humility to learn from people in very different contexts when we are. And when God's working in ways we haven't seen in our own lives, you're not all there is. And so let's learn from this. And so I'm eager to dive into this this very different world. That's right. It's different. Good. That's what we need. We need a voice that's coming from a perspective very different than ours. And so, so we've got tremendous diversity here in the Bible that we can benefit from. That's actually one of the main reasons diversity is so helpful in the church, to have people from different contexts and cultures and experiences that come together in Christ, and we learn from each other in that. And so so our passage is right out of the gate something that's very different and interesting that we are going to learn a lot from this morning. Let's pray as we go to God's word. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's so different than our experiences. Lord, help us to be people who are humble as we go to your word and learn all you have for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we go. We're about to learn the story of Isaac and Jacob, Esau, Jacob's brother. And here's the other thing we need to think about as we go in. In some ways, these people are nothing like us. But in the most important ways, they're just like us. (laughs) In the most fundamental human nature ways, actually, they're uncomfortably like us. Watch. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son, Genesis 25, 19. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Oh, we've heard that before, haven't we? Actually, Isaac, who's praying for his wife, was born a quarter of a century after his birth was promised. His parents, Abraham and Sarah, had to wait 25 years because Sarah couldn't have children. It's showing up again. God must be up to something. And the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived 20 years after they were married. 20 years, almost as long as Isaac's parents, uh, as, um, uh, as the boy's parents, yes. As, as Isaac's parents, yes. Lots of names here. And the Lord granted the prayer and Rebekah's wife conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And two people from within you will be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The The older shall serve the younger. 
He's going to do it differently than we'd expect. Nothing new for God. Verse 24, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in the womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Heel grabber. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So heel grabber and red are born. Had to be their nicknames, right? Literally, that's what their names mean. Verse 27, when the boys grew up, wow, that was fast. Sort of like Jesus' life. They're men now. Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, you're getting some hints here. Esau's not going to look good in this story. And you're getting some hints. It seems to start with how his father finds his love for him. Can you imagine? Ah, I love my son because he feeds me food I like. We can do that to our kids, huh? Oh, this is our, this is our child, the baseball player. Right? This is our child, the smart one. And, and before you know it, we're defining our kids in ways that isn't helpful to them. How would you like to be known as the one who gives good food to his father. Oh, and I think this has an effect on who he becomes. Watch what happens. Verse 29, when Jacob was cooking stew, I just love how human all this stuff is. It's so great. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field. He was exhausted, and Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom, Red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank, and rose, and went his way. Now you need to know that Old Testament writers very seldom evaluate the character of the, the characters in the story. This is an exception. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. Wow. So there's our introduction to Jacob and Esau that we'll be spending time learning about for the next two and a half months. So what do we need to know here? What's, what's important going on in this fascinating story? Well, sin has messed everything up. Human rebellion against our Creator has caused devastation, not just in our relationship with our Creator, but with human beings, starting in human families. The human family is where creation started with Adam and Eve. Sin took root in the human family, and it's always had a devastating effect on families ever since. Those who are closest to you have the greatest capacity to deeply wound you 
and hurt and disappoint you. And our closest relationships are very often where we find our greatest joys and our greatest sorrows. And the family has taken a devastating blow in the midst of this fallen world. But, here's the point, in the midst of this messed up world, we need to trust God because He is good, He's faithful, and He's wise. And He's the only one who can solve this human sin problem. I think it's very important to understand this passage this morning in light of Genesis 1 and Genesis 3. In Genesis 1, we have this beautiful creation where God makes everything for His glory and for the good of His created subjects. It's a beautiful place he's created. He's provided for them in amazing ways. But they rebel against him. They choose to go their own way. And God has made human beings in his image for his glory. And they're walking with God when the story starts. But by the time we get just two chapters over to Genesis 3, human beings have said, I'm not satisfied with who God is. I'm going to take matters into my own hands and decide good and evil for myself. And that begins this horrible journey of unspeakable anguish starting with our fractured relationship with our Creator. In Genesis 1, we're blessed by God and we're provided for by God. But those provisions become ends in themselves for us and we devote ourselves to those provisions of God, even these good blessings of God, and they become idols and we worship them and the things that we make rather than the God who made us. And we fall into idolatry and striving then to create our own little world that will never satisfy. In Genesis 1, Adam and Eve are naked and unashamed, walking with God in the cool of the day. But by the time we get to Genesis 3, they're cowering in shame, needing God to provide the first sacrifice and coverings for that shame. So much happens in that little amount of time. They're told to be fruitful and multiply and rule over and subdue. But because of their rebellion, life is lost and death results and emptiness and forsakenness and barrenness becomes how things are. Rather than fruitfulness, there's death and emptiness. Rather than fullness of joy, there is now woven into all of creation a relentless difficulty in all of creation. And those of us who know this perspective, who don't try to explain all the pain away by saying, oh, it's a circle of life, or yin and yang, and it's just an illusion, or just wait, everything will get better. Those of us who call evil evil and good good and know the difference, know we need a solution to the evil that we don't have. That's the human condition. And until we get to the point where we give up our own ability to solve the human dilemma, will never run to the God who alone can solve it. And that's what we're finding in this passage this morning, this growing need to trust God when things are really hard and don't go the way we expect them to. And so this this seed of the woman is promised in Genesis 3 that this one will come one day, starting with Eve's child, and then you've got the first murder where Cain kills Abel, And we're on to this road of destruction. But he says, he promises right in Genesis 3, there's going to be an offspring of Eve one day who comes and he will be the one who will crush the head of the serpent, reverse the curse, and solve the problem that we can't solve on our own. And then the whole story of human history 
becomes a progression to that one who would come. And we, as those who follow Jesus, realize he was the one. That ever since the seed of the woman came from Eve, that there was, has been this progression right through this line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob now. And on through the other leaders of God's people, we see this culminate in Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, the one who comes and brings God, God's redeeming work and the kingdom of God to reality. He's the one we look to. He's the seed of the woman we've been waiting for. That's what we realize in him. And in the meantime, we also recognize that until he makes all things new one day, there is still relentless difficulty and pain and barrenness and struggle woven into all of life. And we get to Romans 8 in the New Testament when we find out that that pain is not something God's watching happen helplessly. He's actually created a reality in the curse where we will never find satisfaction in this world. We're in the pains of childbirth, Romans 8 says. An anguish groaning with the rest of creation, longing and waiting for the day of redemption. And we don't try to anesthetize ourselves as if this isn't a problem with some helpful, pithy, self-help talk. No, we know we need a drastic solution because it's a drastic problem. And that solution is Jesus. But we realize that on the way home, this life is filled with a barrenness as Rebecca experiences, not just literal barrenness of a woman unable to bear children, but a barrenness now and a lifelessness to the world. This barrenness is just an image of, of a lifelessness, a death that reigns in the world. We all are dying in this very moment. And we need to desperately work every day to keep things alive in this world filled with entropy, right? Things are, everything's falling apart. We live in a cursed world. It couldn't be more obvious. And Rebecca's barrenness in this story is emblematic of a barrenness, a forsakenness, a difficulty woven through all of life. This barrenness that she experiences. And it means God needs to provide. God needs to bring the solution. We can't bring life when there's only death. Only God can do that as the author of life. And God's turning everything upside down here, so sin's messed everything up, but God's the one we trust. But what we need to realize is on the way to God fulfilling his promises and making all things new, very often there's a lot of pain involved and a lot of head-scratching mystery involved of why in the world he's doing it this way. Look at this story. So 20 years, you wouldn't think they'd have to wait 20 years like Abraham and Sarah, but that's how God weaves it in. Why would he do that? Because barrenness leads to a need to trust God, just like Abraham and Sarah. Well, if it's going to happen, God's going to have to do a miracle. That's the point they got to. Same with this couple. They've been married 20 years and they're waiting and they're saying, Lord, what, what's up with your timing? And then Isaac's prayers are answered. Rebecca gets pregnant and then her pregnancy is so difficult. She says, I didn't know this is what I signed up for. And she goes to the Lord and she says, why is it this? It's like there's a war raging inside of me. This is, this is brutal. And he says, that's because there is a war raging inside of you. 
There's not one baby there. There are two. There are two persons, and they are going to go to war in each other's lives and in their relationship, but they are actually going to be the source of two nations. That's, that's what the oracle says, right? That's what this prophecy says. Verse 23, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. God keeps flipping the script and saying, why would you do it that way? Why would you do it that way? Why would there be so much pain if this is your plan? Why would it take so long if this is your plan? You could snap your fingers and do it right now. You could snap your fingers and take it all away. But the pain in childbirth that's incorporated in Genesis 3 and the thorns and thistles and sweat of the brow, the relentless difficulty of work are all woven into our daily lives now. So where do we go? We go to God. We go to him. We trust him. We don't trust our circumstances. So this, this woman's inability to have a child is just a symbol of a, kind, a condition in the world. It's literally true, but, but it's true of all of creation as well. And we need to recognize this truth that God does things so differently than we do so often. He, he turns it all upside down. And indeed, just weeks later, this first prophecy that there are two children comes true. You see, twins are born. But you know it'll take a thousand years before we see the nations start to war with each other. And they do. Oh, it's so fascinating to study this this, this week and, and realizing that the Israelites that come from Jacob and the Edomites that come from Esau indeed become two distinct nations. And there's not just a battle between Jacob and Esau. There's a battle between their descendants for thousands of years. Did you realize that when the Israelites left Exodus, they needed safe passage through Edom and asked the Edomites for it? And the Edomites said, no. And we got a war on our hands. Did you know eventually the Edomites joined forces with Babylon? and are part of the destruction of Jerusalem thousands of years later? It's just amazing how this comes true. Now, it takes a long time, and there's difficulty, but God's ways are very different than ours very often. Did you know that Herod was from Idumea? Herod, who opposed the king of the Jews, was an Edomite. Even in Jesus' ministry, we've got this ongoing battle as he opposes the one who's the king of the Jews. But God provides. He provides. He's gracious. He miraculously provides. Do you realize how often that God's anointed leaders come from a protracted time of an inability to bear children? It's it's not just Isaac. It's not just Jacob and Esau. Think about Joseph. Think about Samson and Samuel and John the Baptist, all after an inability to bear children. Now, Jesus didn't come after a protracted time of barrenness, but he came through a miraculous birth that cannot be explained anyway but God's intervention. Same idea, getting us to the end of our own resources, the end of ourself and the ability to solve these things. And God overcomes this. And so this idea, this image of a woman unable to bear children who God provides for becomes becomes an image of life in a fallen world and an image of how God provides. Listen to Psalm 113. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is seated on high? Who looks far down in the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. And then listen to verse nine. He gives the barren woman a home making her the joyous mother of children. 
Praise the Lord. And God fulfills that literal promise to Rebekah. But then after the promise is fulfilled, she says, I think the pain of barrenness was better than the pain of this pregnancy. And there's something fascinating going on here. You can, you can talk to parents who maybe couldn't have a child for a long time, and if that child-parent relationship is especially painful, they will tell you the pain of barrenness couldn't compare to the pain of this estranged relationship with this child. You know, I, I look at the Woodruffs who just found out their little boy, Moses, has Down syndrome. I'm sure that's not what they imagined and envisioned and certainly not what they hoped and prayed for, but that's what God has for them. And I know them. I know them. I know them well enough to know that when they found this out, they moved toward the God that they love and worship and served, and they moved toward him in the pain and difficulty of this and not away from him. I'm not saying it's easy for them or any of us to do that, but that's what we're called to. We move toward the God who orchestrates our lives in ways that are very different than the way we would very often and are often filled with a lot of pain. We move toward him, not away from him. We move toward the pain saying, Lord, what is it you have for me in this? And it's always basically the same answer. I have greater trust in you for me in this. That's what I have. You know, Don and I were never able to conceive children and it was very painful. And eventually we said, all right, Lord, this is what you have for us and we poured our parental affection into other people's kids for years as college professors. And then God moved in our hearts and we started this whole new phase of our lives and now we've got a daughter going off to college in a few months. And delightful children. Sam was Mr. Bucket in Willy Wonka last night. And it's just, it's just amazing how God takes you in directions you never planned, you never orchestrated. It was so good for me to have a rude awakening of how presumptuous I had been on the providence of God. I remember my whole life, you want to have kids? Of course. How many? Six. Preferably three boys, three girls. Starting when I'm 24, right after college, that'll be the best time to do it. What in the world? We can just be so presumptuous on the providence of God. And sometimes it takes decades to have even a beginning of a clue of why he's doing it this way, what he's up to. But he's always up to something good. He's always up to something glorifying himself, even when it's really hard. And so what do we do? We go to him. We don't go to bitterness. We don't don't go to resentment. We don't go to envy or self-pity. We go to God. The God who made us for himself and the God who is remaking us in his son. That's who we go to. We trust him in all of this. How do we respond? We respond realizing, oh, his ways are very different than ours. They take longer very often. They're more painful very often. His ways are very different than ours. They they flip the script so often. The one you'd expect him to choose is not the one he chooses. The impressive one is not the one he chooses. His economy, his way of doing things is very different than we tend to think. 
That's what God is like. And we need to trust him in this very different way of doing things. God chooses, for instance, the younger over the older. God breaks with all the expectations, all the social conventions, and over and over again, he says, no, not Cain the older, Abel the younger. Not Ishmael the older, Isaac the younger. Not Esau the older, Jacob the younger. Not Joseph, not his brothers, but Joseph. Not Manasseh, Ephraim. Not David's brothers, but David. Not Adonijah, but Solomon. Over and over again, he keeps saying, that's what you're thinking I'm going to do, huh? Nope. I don't operate by your definitions of success. I don't operate by your definitions of impressive. And it is a tragedy how often the church, especially in America, gets sucked into all kinds of worldly ways of defining success. When God says, that's not how I do it. I do it in lowliness. I do it in humility. The king of kings, before he goes to a cross, washes his friend's feet. That's how he does things. Not how I would if I were running the show, thank God. I'm not running the show. He is, and he does it so differently than we expect. And so when we get to Jesus who says, oh, in my kingdom, the first will be last and the last will be first. That's how my kingdom works. The greatest in my kingdom is the one who serves more than anybody else. That's not how the world works. That's how we work as God's people, though. We start to get that, and we start to see the life-giving value of it and the wisdom of it and the goodness of it. And we find out that, as Jesus said, it's true, it's better to give than receive. Oh, I, I so desperately wanted a solution in the reading service. The reading service was just over and over again. Over and over again, selfish ambition, managing everything. I'm going to make this work. I'm going to speed up the timing of it. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. The husbands, the wives, the concubines, everybody. They're all doing Everybody's just taking matters in their own hands. All this selfish ambition. And I remember sitting there saying, ah, we need a solution. I sat right there on the edge of my seat, beautifully being brought into the word of God by our readers. And, and I just could think, this is horrible. And it looks just like us. Every time I read the news or look around me or look at my own heart, we've got this mess, this selfish ambition everywhere. Who will save us from all of this? And I thought, I know. Jesus. And I thought of Philippians 2 where it says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Yeah, that's what we need. That's what we need. And you hear people all the time, if we could all just get along with everything. Yeah, right. We can't. So what do we do? We, we, no selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, consider others more important than yourselves. That's what the Christian's called to. Look out for not just your own interests, but for the interests of others. Yeah, that's what we need. How do we get there? Here's how we get there. You know what it says next in Philippians 2? Have this mind, this way of thinking in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in very nature God, he had the whole inheritance coming to him. Did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, like Esau grasped onto that stew, but made himself nothing. He relinquished it. He trusted his heavenly Father and gave himself entirely to death. That's what it says. This mind in Jesus didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, taking on human likeness, and humbling himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so it's in Christ 
You want to talk about barrenness? How about the forsakenness he experiences on the cross? Jesus does it for us. He does it in our place. And so what do we do? How do we respond? We go to him. We don't respond like Esau. Oh, man, Esau does not look good in this story. I can relate to Esau far too much. It's actually painful for me to relate to Esau as much as I do as I read this story. Do you get the, literally in Hebrew what it says is, this red, this red stuff, give it to me. Ugh. Right? He's just, he's just this brute who comes out of the field. Very impressive, you know, strapping, virile, outdoorsman, hunter, macho, impressive. And you got, you got mama's boy in there making stew, right? And Esau comes in. It, it, it's, it's, it's embarrassing. Here are the verbs used to describe Esau in our story. Ate, drank, rose, went his way unsophisticated, unthinking oaf. He comes in and he says, give me some of that. Well, give me a birthright. Uh, what's a birthright to me? I'm going to die here. No, you're not. You're not going to die. Do you see his appetites in the moment are everything to him? His, his appetites, his most basic appetites of hunger. Now he's hungry and he's tired. Not a good place to be when temptation comes. And his, his wily brother says, I know him well. He's vulnerable. I'll take advantage of this. Give me, give me that. Give me that stew. I'm going to die. He says, what is my birthright to me? <gasps> Your whole future. Your whole inheritance, a double portion of it your family name, your lineage, the, the welfare of your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and your wife, that's what it is to you, and you just traded it in for a bowl of lentils. He's not looking good here. And as I said, he gets evaluated, and so e thus Esau despised his birthright. He didn't value it. He weighed a bowl of soup more than his birthright. He loved the immediate desire being fulfilled rather than the long-term value. It's lunacy. Anybody just graduate this week? Yes, tell me your name. Nicole, where'd you graduate from? You did. You got a degree of human biology. What do you want to do with that? Oh, so you'll be so helpful. Yes, Nicole. How, how many years? How much money? You're not going to ask. Yeah, that's a lot of money. <laughs> a lot of money, time, effort. You got your degree. It's going to open all these doors. What would you think if I came to you and said, hey, Nicole, I got this donut hole. <laughs> and if you'll just give me that diploma, transfer all the benefits, all the value, all the open doors, all the provision, all the knowledge gained. It's a really good donut hole. What do you think? It's ridiculous, isn't it, Nicole? Yeah, don't do that. Say no, right? It's what Esau does. He does. 
I wonder if he, after he realized the damage he had done, especially after the scene we're going to preach in a little bit where his father gets involved and the scoundrel Jacob goes up even more in this, I wonder if he walked in and saw that empty bowl with the spoon in it, maybe still not washed, and said, it wasn't worth it. In the moment, it sure felt like it, but it wasn't. It was idiocy. Don't you dare judge Esau. Do you know every single time one of us sins, we're doing the same thing? I don't care what that sin looks like. I don't care if it's clicking on a website, you know dishonors God. I don't care if it's lying to just make yourself look a little bit better than reality. I don't care if it's bailing on a marriage that's hard. I, I'm, I'm not, it's not lying to keep a little more money in your pocket. Saying something negative about somebody else to tear them down so you can feel better about yourself. Whatever it is, however it shows up, that's just Esau. That's just living by my gut. You know how the New Testament talks about these people? This very same, listen to what it says about Esau in Hebrews 12. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it become defiled. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. He realized later, I don't know how much longer, a lot of times you realize immediately how unfulfilling sin is. Yet we keep giving ourselves to it, and it's just not keeping its promises. Has sin ever kept its promises with you? Oh, it may be pleasurable for a season, but it always ends up leading to death, leading to emptiness, leading to barrenness. And Esau is this horrible example, and I think he's especially an indictment of, of men even more so in our culture. I was just reading him, and I was thinking of how we men are so easily driven by our appetites, I think often more than women even. It's just, yeah, I want it now. I, I, we get these credit cards, and we get a credit card, and we don't have the money but we go to Fiji anyway. We got all these things, these needs, these responsibilities, and we'll just play video games or watch endless hours of fo football or fantasy football. It's not even real football. And all, all these things we'll do, and, and pornography's taking over in so many men's lives. And we're just a bunch of Esau's running around. Ugh. We're getting killed, people. We're just getting killed and we're certainly not helpful to anybody else. We've got to see how much we relate to this guy. Philippians says people like this are enemies of the cross of Christ. It's not just these people having crusades, you know, promoting atheism and immorality. No, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, it says. <gasps> That's Esau. His immediate appetites determine everything for him. His primary is motive. That's what compels him, not the love of Christ, but his immediate appetite. His feelings in the moment. We just trade it in. We trade our purity, our integrity, our character, our holiness, our intimacy with God, our effectiveness in ministry, lives of other people. We just squander it for something so immediate. We all, I'm certainly including myself in this, need to learn from Esau and relate to him and learn from his example. That's what the New Testament's calling us to do. Look how it says, don't, don't let your belly be your God, Philippians 3. 
Their glory is their shame with their minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. We're citizens of heaven. We don't store up our treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. We store them in heaven where those things don't happen. We don't get anxious about our days and think we need to control everything even if it's sinful. We want, seek first the kingdom of God and God will take care of you. All these things will be added to you. That's what Jesus said. We're not people racked with anxiousness and taking matters into our own hands. We break out of that pattern of human experience. So we don't follow Esau's example and we don't follow Jacob's either. Now Jacob has an admirable, desperate need for God. He wrestles with God. His name is changed to one who wrestles with God later. And, and that, that's a good thing. There's some good stuff going on in Jacob in the midst of him being a scoundrel. Takes advantage of his blind father a little bit later. But in the midst of it, he knows he needs God. And he says, bless me. If you don't bless me, nothing will happen. And so there's something good about him. But, but Jacob too, his name means heel grabber. That name, that Jacob could mean God is your guard. God is at your, he's got your back. But because of how he lives, he's, he's a deceiver. He's shrewd. Now God can use that. God can sanctify ambition and make it something really good. And that happens at times in Jacob's life. But Esau, Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, none of them could provide what we needed. Jacob's the quiet of the land. His name is Jacob, and his brother Esau in chapter 27 is, says, is he not rightly named Jacob, for he cheated me these two times? Because he refused to wait for God's timing. So, so Jacob can't be the one who fulfills the promised seed. It's got to be someone else. It's got to be Jesus, who, when he's confronted in a very hungry state, He's tempted at the beginning of his ministry with a very similar sort of temptation to Esau. He's been fasting, not just after a long day of hunting and he didn't come up with anything. Jesus has been fasting on a mountain for 40 days. And then he doesn't have a confrontation with his brother. He has one with Satan himself, the accuser of the brethren. And he says, come on, Jesus, follow your appetites. You're hungry. You're the son of God. Turn those stones to bread. And eat, feast, just create a feast for yourself from rocks. And Jesus does the opposite of Esau. He says, no. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every thought and word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He doesn't follow his appetites. He follows the will of God, the ways of God. And he does that for us. There's a whole lot of Esau in every one of us. And so we need a whole lot of Jesus to represent us. Every one of us is miserable to be failed, and God in his love, every one of us has frequently gone to that easiest thing, even if it's not pleasing to God. And Jesus comes along, and every step of the way, when he's tempted, he says, not my will, but thy will be done. He rests in God. He trusts in his Father and depends on him. And he then becomes our sufficiency before God. He's the one who provides the way for us. 
in his forsakenness, his barrenness on the cross, and in his perfect life of obedience, overcoming temptation every step of the way, and then we rest in him. We trust in God because he does provide the seed of the woman who would come perfectly, and Jesus is everything we'll ever need, and we trust him. We have faith in him. We actually do follow Rebecca and Isaac's example then because when they were in desperation, what'd they do? Twice, they prayed. When they couldn't have a child, and Rebecca, when she was in pain, she goes to the Lord, and that's what we do. We're a prayerful people because we're a dependent people and a trusting people. And we pray, and we go to him, and we trust him, realizing that he overcame in our place. And then we can become the kind of people who find who we are in Jesus and can start to look and love like Jesus because we're citizens of heaven. We've got everything we need. He's got us covered. He's got our back. And we don't need to take matters into our own hands. We don't need to live life based on our immediate experience. We live in a culture that's obsessed with immediate, subjective, personal experience. It decides what's real to us instead of depending on God to tell us what's real and to live according to him and his ways. I am so thankful we have folks praying with with us at the end of our services. Uh, These are devoted folks who love to pray and love to minister, and we have a team of people praying. If this sermon has stirred something in you, gratitude, sorrow, repentance, joy, whatever it is, if you came in here with a burden or a joy of some kind, there will be folks up here at, at the end of the service to pray with you. They would love to do that and linger with you after. But let's trust this God who provides for us as only he could, more and more each day. Help us, Lord, in these things we pray. We are a feckless, fickle, frail, fallen people. Help us, Lord, to grow in our substance, our weightiness, our living for eternity because we depend on Jesus who alone is sufficient. Give us increasing faith that flows from an increasing understanding of who you are, that flows from an increasing understanding of Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.